Welcome back to New Rockstars, I'm Eric Voss, and Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, while not a perfect film, actually does contain some subtle strokes of genius to establish the dark origins of the Skywalker saga. So let us continue our Star Wars rewatch series and reveal why Episode One definitely does deserve a legacy greater than the Star Wars kid. First, the title, The Phantom Menace. Like many Star Wars films, the title contains multiple meanings. While Darth Maul is certainly a Phantom Menace, so is Anakin Skywalker, so is Padme. We'll get to why in a second, but more than any one, the Phantom Menace of this film is Sheev Palpatine, aka Darth Sidious. The entire plot is a conspiracy by Palpatine to ascend to power. And if the storylines of this film ever come off as messy or overpolitical, just imagine the Emperor's voice croaking from behind it all. Everything that has transpired has done so according to my design. Any frustration we feel is really the Emperor telling us to get into our anger. Because the dramatic irony is alerting to us where this is all going. And oftentimes we want to scream at the screen, Stop! Don't do it! And this whole sense of foreboding is expressed in the opening lines. I have a bad feeling about this. George Lucas gives the Star Wars catchphrase to a young Obi-Wan Kenobi, played by Ewan McGregor, who's actually the nephew of Dennis Lawson, who plays Wedge and Tilly's. Lucas's original vision for the prequels was to focus on Obi-Wan, but he shifted it to focus more significantly on Anakin Skywalker. Lucas structures the prequels as a kind of Shakespearean tragedy, Fanakin being the tragic hero, kind of like Macbeth, Obi-Wan as the Macduff righteous rival figure, and the Emperor, you could say, is kind of a Lady Macbeth figure, the true corruptive evil. Also interesting is the response of Obi-Wan's master, Qui-Gon Jinn, played by Liam Neeson. I don't sense anything. Qui-Gon's numbness exposes his general blindness to what's going on. As we learn in Attack of the Clones, all the Jedi are waning in power and their ability to see what is coming. Qui-Gon Jinn represents the old order that begins to collapse and die off in this film, a blissfully optimistic era that comes off as shallow to those who are more familiar with Star Wars as a more cynical, broken world of the original trilogy. Lucasfilm artist Doug Chain stated that George Lucas intended episode one to be, quote, like a period piece, since it was the history leading up to a new hope. And like figures in historical films, we are meant to judge these heroes of the past for that blindness. Lucas's strongest suit in the prequels is world building, including the Jedi traditions that an older Obi-Wan waxed poetic about in A New Hope. An elegant weapon for a more civilized age. For over a thousand generations, the Jedi Knights were the guardians of peace and justice in the old Republic before the dark times. So it's kind of cool to explore what this old man meant by a more civilized age. Like you can see how Obi-Wan wears a Padawan braid. When a master feels that his apprentice has reached proper maturity, he must face a series of trials, and if completed, he cuts off the braid with his lightsaber. So the Jedi here survived the attack by the Trade Federation, Namodians, and their battle droids. Lucas described these as predecessors to the stormtroopers, and they were given elongated features inspired by tribal African art. Palpatine's role as puppet master is established early on, and John Williams's music identifies Sidious as the same Emperor from the original trilogy by using the Emperor theme. We must accelerate our plans. Begin landing our troops. Remember this music, because it comes back in the coolest way. We meet Queen Amidala of Naboo, played by Natalie Portman, and Kira Knightley swapping identities between the Queen and her handmaiden, Padme, in order to protect the Queen. So in essence, Padme is also playing the same masquerade game of Palpatine, making her a phantom menace in her own respect. They digitally lowered Portman's voice to make it indistinguishable from Knightley's, making it a challenge to decipher which is which scene to scene. Similarly, shortly after this, Senator Palpatine's transponder interference briefly lowers his voice as well. I have assurances from the Chancellor. His ambassadors did arrive. Let's be the 
negotiate. So like Amidala's modulation, he too sounds like his alter ego briefly. And as the Jedi are later blindsided by Padme's deception, so too are they blindsided by Palpatine's. Sofia Coppola cameos as another handmaiden. Actually, there's a lot of celebrity kids cameoing in this movie, randomly. And we're gonna skip them because nepotism isn't craft I'm interested in. Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon meet Jar Jar Binks, played by Ahmed Best, who originally wore a prosthetic suit before his movement was later mapped over with CGI. According to the Phantom Menace making of documentary, which is fascinating, Lucas gambled hard on Jar Jar being the fan favorite of this film. Jar Jar is a key to all this because he's a funnier character than we've ever had in any of the movies before. Well, yeah, no. But before I continue, thank you to The Ridge for sponsoring this episode. The Ridge makes everyday goods to a standard you don't see every day. They streamline your life by turning the things you carry, like backpacks, chargers, and wallets, into tools for a better living. Their flagship product, The Ridge Wallet, was launched on Kickstarter in 2013 and now sits in the front pockets of over half a million men and women, of which I am one. My old wallet was overstuffed with like old expired gift cards and doodles I drew on napkins that I couldn't bring myself to throw away because that X-Wing looks sick. But no more! The Ridge has helped me trim down, stick to the essentials, and uh, made me in general less lumpy. This is their aluminum wallet in the raw color, and they have other colors including some very flashy tiki designs. This is light, it's strong, and it has a cool industrial chic vibe. I'm pretty sure industrial chic just means like sexy robot. This feels like a sexy robot. The Ridge is a minimal front pocket wallet that is designed to streamline what you carry every day. It has over 30,000 five-star reviews and is a better way to carry your cash and cards. There's a lifetime warranty if you love it and free returns if you don't. It comes in titanium, carbon fiber, aluminum, and over a dozen different styles and colors. We also got their weatherproof commuter backpack that comes with a shock-resistant laptop holder and a hidden RFID blocking pocket. Get 10% off today with free worldwide shipping and returns by going to ridge.com slash newrockstars. That's ridge.com slash new rockstars and use the code rockstars. Find the link in the video's description below. After visiting the Gungan city, they're pursued by an OPC killer, Cola Clawfish, Sando Aqua Monster. There's always a bigger fish. I love this line because if you think about it, it's a simpler version of the rule of two. Behind every threat is a second larger threat lurking in the shadows. They rescue the queen and escape on her starship, which Qui-Gon will later identify as a Nubian model J-327. 327 was the name of the Death Star landing bay where Han landed the Falcon. And the landing platform in Cloud City in Empire. Permission granted to land on platform 327. They escape the blockade thanks to R2-D2, who gets a royal freaking commendation for a droid, yet still no medal for Chewie. They stop at Tatooine to replace their hyperdrive, venturing to the city of Mos Espa, where they meet Watto, voiced by Andy Seacombe. Watto often flies instead of walking because if you look closely, one of his feet is longer than the other. And we meet Anakin Skywalker, played here by Jake Lloyd. Now the character was written to be 12 originally, but Lucas aged him down so that his separation from his mother would affect him more in the later films. Much of Anakin's descent can be traced back to mommy issues, with Anakin's vengeful rage on the Tusken Raiders a key moral break for his character. Shmi warns him about this, saying, Don't look back. Don't look back. This line is another example of how past history can be a dangerous burden, like Qui-Gon's obsession with ancient prophecies. The world we leave behind, if we're not careful, can distract and corrupt us. Anakin asks Padme if she's an angel, mentioning hearing about angels from the moons of Iego. In a Clone Wars animated series episode, Anakin and Obi-Wan actually travel to Iego and encounter one of these angels. And we learn that Anakin built the protocol droid C-3PO, still without his plating here. Actually, in the background of the shop, you can see another protocol droid with its leg missing, a nod to c 
C-3PO in A New Hope in his swapped out silver leg, Watto's scrapyard also contains an EBA pod from 2001 A Space Odyssey. Inside Anakin's room, there's this statue that many have since said resembles Maz Kanata from the new films. And what's weird is the Phantom Menace Visual Dictionary lists this statue as being in Palpatine's quarters. Now, it is believed that Anakin's virgin birth was actually Palpatine manipulating midichlorians to conceive Anakin in Shmi's womb. Also, Maz Kanata is said to be a thousand years old, and she later shows up possessing Anakin's lightsaber and the pod race flags decorate Maz Kanata's place. So I don't know, perhaps there's a connection between Palpatine, Shmi, Anakin, Maz, and this statue. A tonal conspiracy episode that I hope to do one day. Jar Jar almost gets wrecked by Sebulba, whom Lucas based on a spider, orangutan, sloth, and a camel. One of the background characters at this cafe, the one with the yellow paint over his nose, actually inspired Expanded Universe writers to create the character Quinlan Voss. No relation. On Coruscant, Sidious chats with Darth Maul, played by Ray Park and voiced by Peter Serafinowicz. Maul's appearance was designed to reflect Christian art depiction of the devil. At one point he was designed to have feathers on his head, but they were replaced with horns. They used Rorschach-style ink blots for the tattoos. At last we will reveal ourselves to the Jedi. At last we will have revenge. And what does he mean by revenge here? Because they never really say in this film. It turns out, a thousand years before, the Sith were a group of Jedi who challenged the old doctrine of restraint, instead believing that rage is a way to harness the Force's power, which led to their exile from the Jedi and their attempts over the centuries to overturn the Jedi Order. Anakin prepares for the pod race with his buddies, which includes a cameo by Warwick Davis as a Rodian named Weasel, who, in a deleted scene, taunted a young Greedo for brawling with Anakin. Davis also cameos as Watto's friend Wald in a later scene. Qui-Gon and Watto roll a dice colored red and blue, connected to the recurring red versus blue imagery throughout the series. In this scene, Anakin is associated with blue, goodness, but as the trilogy goes on, he'll be more and more associated with red and black, the colors of evil. According to the script, this cube was actually rigged to land on red, which is why Watto later tells Qui-Gon that it wasn't a fair bet, though he can't admit why he knows that. Presiding over the pod race is Jabba the Hutt, and a younger Bib Fortuna, also a slave girl wearing the same kind of metal bikini that Leia would wear. There's also the female Gardula the Hutt, the one that used to own Anakin and Shmi. And to start this race, Jabba bites the head off a frog and spits it at a gong, a callback to him eating those frogs in Return of the Jedi. This pod race is one of the best sequences of the film. The effects are great, it's super exciting, and the way they accomplished it is by basing it on one of the most exciting sequences in all of film, the chariot race of Ben-Hur. You may also notice how this stadium's architecture is based on the Roman designs of the early Christian era when Ben-Hur takes place. Also cameoing during this pod race is this bounty hunter, Aura Singh, who would go on to play a larger role in the Clone Wars animated series and get a shout out in Solo. After the race when Qui-Gon settles up with Watto, notice passing behind him is a probe droid, one of the ones that Maul sent out in search for them. In a deleted scene, Qui-Gon finally notices this thing and cuts it down. After a brush with Darth Maul, they head to Coruscant. As they arrive, you can see Jar Jar in the background waving his hand in front of a guard, like, you know, those annoying tourists in England in front of the Queen's Guard. Also, later in the background of this city planet, you can spot a spinner from Blade Runner and the Starship Enterprise from Star Trek. And they meet then-Senator Palpatine. There is no civility, only politics. The Republic is not what it once was. Notice how Palpatine's sentence structure of there is no civility, there is only politics, is a corruption of the part of the Jedi Code, which states there is no fear, only calm, there is no death, 
there's only the force. Also, in the back of this office, they included a prop of the Maltese Falcon from the classic film noir film, a symbol of Palpatine's moral ambiguity. And they take Anakin to the Jedi Council. Now, in the 1999 release, Yoda was a puppet reconstructed to make Yoda try to appear younger, but the shade of green was off. So in 2011, George Lucas replaced him with the CGI redesign that they started using in Attack of the Clones. Also among the council are Samuel L. Jackson as Mace Windu, whose name comes from George Lucas's original name for the mentor figure of his first draft for the first film. Also, there are Jedi Masters like Plo Koon, Ki-Adi Mundi, and Yaddle, a female of Yoda's mystery species. The Senate delegations include Wookiees from Kashyyyk, a Twi'lek senator, and a few aliens from E.T., with George Lucas returning the nod to Spielberg for the Yoda cameo in E.T. Actually, in the Star Wars novel Cloak of Deception, these beings are described from being from the planet Brodo Asogi, represented by Senator Greebleeps, which is Spielberg spelled backwards. After convincing the Queen to call for a vote of no confidence, on the previous Chancellor Valorum, Palpatine gets nominated on a wave of sympathy for Naboo, and now that everything's falling into place, notice that when the Queen leaves, the slightest half-smile begins to form on Palpatine's face. Yoda and the Council reject Anakin. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. But Qui-Gon defies them and explains midichlorians to Anakin. Midichlorians are a microscopic life form that resides within all living cells. Without the midichlorians, Life could not exist, and we would have no knowledge of the Force. Now, perhaps when you listen to this, the Metachlorians in your blood boil. Yes, by giving the Force a scientific basis, Lucas demythologized what was once a spiritual aspect of his fantasy world into a codified science fiction one. It actually makes Star Wars a different genre. But as we rewatched The Phantom Menace, these kind of facts were inserted into this period film with the understanding that this whole belief system would be wiped away. The same way that in our world, culture and science are lost when civilizations collapse from war. So you don't have to like midichlorians at all, because in a few years, this truth will be replaced by a belief system that views the whole Jedi religion itself as a myth. Back on Naboo, the Gungans engage with the battle droids on the planes, battle droids that, for some reason, need binoculars. You'd think that would just be designed in his eyepieces. And later when the battleship controlling them gets destroyed from a lucky trigger pull by Anakin Skywalker, the one Jar Jar knocks over is numbered 1138 for Lucas's past film. Every single one of these damn movies has THX 1138 in it. Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan engage Darth Maul, who reveals a double-bladed lightsaber. Oh boy. This design was actually borrowed from the comic series Tales of the Jedi, The Sith War, and this thrilling duel was designed by stunt coordinator Nick Gillard, who built out various lightsaber duel forms based on kendo and kenjutsu styles. And we're hearing John Williams' epic Duel of the Fates. It's composed of chanted lyrics from an archaic Welsh poem called Battle of the trees, and it's all been translated into Sanskrit, taking the verse under the tongue root, a fight most dread, and another raging behind in the head, and rearranging the Sanskrit translation into the Koramata syllables that we're familiar with. Obi-Wan watches his mentor die, screaming, no! just like Luke will do when he watches him die. No! And we'll see Anakin will do both when he believes Luke has died. when he thinks Luke is about to die. No! And of course, as Luke will say when his soul dies. No! No! It's a saga of no's. Obi-Wan ends up defeating Maul, slicing him in half. Fun fact, Maul never blinks once throughout the whole film, except 
the moment Obi-Wan bisects him. Now, of course, the Clone Wars animated series reveals that Maul survives this moment, setting him up for a future comeback in Solo and perhaps future live action installments. Qui-Gon leaves Obi-Wan with a dying wish to train the boy, a lesson to never, ever, ever feel beholden to honor a dying man's wishes. When Obi-Wan counsels Luke as a Force ghost, Luke ignores his counsel, and that serves him well, if you think about it. It's a major theme throughout these Star Wars films. The world is for the living to decide what to do with it. Ghosts and dying men, they're stubborn and biased. They don't get a vote. But Yoda reluctantly approves, leading him and Mace Windu introducing the rule of two. Always two there are. No more, no less. A master and an apprentice. But which was destroyed, the master or the apprentice? And as they discuss this, I love that Palpatine attends this funeral. The balls on this guy to hide in plain sight and to keep a straight face in a sacred ceremony for a religion that he detests. Now, the final scene is kind of a bizarre celebration. Well, not bizarre because of Naboo's victory, but bizarre because the dramatic irony tells us that we're witnessing act one of a three-act tragedy. This should be a dark moment. But here's a secret. Phantom Menace's ending is actually one of the darkest moments of the franchise. Notice here that Padme is dressed as an angel evoking the angel of the moons of Diego that Anakin spoke of before, but also her premature departure from this world. And if you stick around through the credits, you hear a rendition of the Imperial March and the sound of Darth Vader's breathing. Here is my favorite hidden detail in The Phantom Menace. In the parade music here, John Williams snuck in a terrifying Easter egg. Listen to the melody of the children's voices singing. Sounds nice, huh? Well, Williams actually came up with this melody by creating a major key, a happy version of the classic Emperor's theme from Return of the Jedi. That theme is sung by deep male voices, but the parade music is a boys' choir. It's a chilling reminder of the dark destiny to come. How the innocent boy of this film will one day become a cruel man with an iconic deep voice, serving the true victor of this moment, the film's true phantom menace. <laughs> Do you think The Phantom Menace deserves its status as the worst-reviewed Star Wars film? Comment down below with your thoughts. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at EAVoss. And subscribe to our podcast feed, WookieLeaks, for all of your Star Wars analysis. And keep an eye out for our upcoming rewatches of Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith. Thank you for joining me. Bye.